All right. Hi to our family who's joining us online. Uh, it's good to be back indoors with you. We had the perfect weather for last Easter. We wrapped up just as it was getting too hot to be out there. Uh, we were so glad that we could have Easter together on campus and online. We continue to do worship all together because there's no distance in the spirit. Amen. Well, for two months leading up to Easter, we were walking through the introduction to a sermon. You think that some of the intros to my sermons are long? Jesus had eight statements. It took us two months to unpack these eight statements for this sermon. Uh, this is what many people would consider the greatest sermon ever preached. It's certainly uh, the longest discourse of Jesus uh, where, where he sits down in one place and just talks. And so we call this the Sermon on the Mount because he is actually sitting on the side of a hill. He's, he's teaching to a few hundred people who have walked up the side of this hill with him. He sits down to demonstrate that he is a rabbi with something authoritative and really important to say, and he begins to speak. And he makes these eight blessed statements, and then he moves on with his sermon. And what we're going to do for the next little while is just walk through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we just figured if you're going to teach the intro to the sermon, you should teach the rest of the sermon. And if you thought the last two weeks leading up to Easter were good, man, wait till you hear the rest of the stuff Jesus says. Uh, and I just want to clarify here that Jesus is not preaching a sermon about how to get into his kingdom. That is not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount is about how you should live once you are in his kingdom. So he's talking to people who are committed to following him. He's talking to people who are, the word is disciples or students, followers of the way of Jesus. Uh, we call ourselves Christians. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and me. And he's not teaching us how to get in. He's talking about how to live once we are in. Now, today, Jesus is going to get to his first point in his sermon. Uh, just so you know, this goes through the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're still in Matthew chapter 5, and the very first point really has three sub-ideas or three metaphors that Jesus uses. We're going to examine these three metaphors today. You heard Jeffrey, <clears throat> excuse me, you heard Jeffrey reading that text today as Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. He says a little bit about that. And then he calls us the light of the world, and he says, you are a city on a hill. And then he says a little bit about that. So today we're going to unpack these three metaphors or these three statements. Just so you know, interestingly enough, I don't know if you're interested in this sort of thing, this is the only time we see Jesus talking about us in metaphor form in the Gospels. Uh, so usually he's very direct, do this, do this, do this. He uses metaphor to talk about the kingdom, but here's a time where he uses metaphor to talk about you and I as individuals, as followers followers of Christ. Uh, again, I don't know if you're interested in that sort of thing, but knowing that makes this stand out all the more to me. It makes it that much more significant. Huh, interesting that Jesus would use metaphor about us just this one time. Maybe he wants us to really catch this. But I also want you to understand as we look at this first point of Jesus's sermon after his introduction, is that Jesus is not making a suggestion for how we should live. He's actually defining us. He's actually describing who we are as people. So he's not giving us uh, some good pro tips on, on how you should think about if you want to be a super Christian, maybe consider doing these things. He's actually saying, if you are one of my followers, this is who you are. 
period. And so we're going to unpack what that means, what the implication of that is. The first thing that Jesus says, as you heard Jeffrey read to us earlier this morning, is he says, you are the salt of the earth. In fact, he goes on to unpack that. He says, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can we say, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under its feet. Because I'm a good preacher, I brought a prop. You guys have had salt before, right? I mean, if you've ever been to a good Mexican restaurant, uh, they put the be- like the best chips out. The saltier, the better, right? This is how you know you're living in the kingdom of heaven because the salt is freely flowing. That's not good preaching. Um, to begin, we actually need to understand this metaphor of salt. Why does Jesus say we are salt? Well, Jesus' original audience would have understood a couple of things about salt that I think we probably take for granted. For one, uh, salt was actually precious at that time. You, You may not know this, but Roman soldiers were known to actually be paid, in some cases, in salt. Have you ever heard the expression that a man or a woman is worth their weight in salt? That comes from the idea that you would be paid with salt, so, so you would actually, it would be like a currency. Uh, now we use the expression worth your weight in gold because that's what's valuable to us now. So you can understand uh, where that may begin to come from. Jesus is saying that we are to be precious in the world. Now notice this. Jesus is not saying here, you are precious. He said that when he died for you on the cross. Here he's saying, if you were a follower of mine, you are to be precious in the world. Meaning you should add value to the world, the way salt added value to the world in Jesus' day. One of the reasons why salt was precious was because it was a preserving element that was used. See, these were the days before everyone had a refrigerator in their house. And we really take this for granted, don't we? Right? You can go to your refrigerator and get a nice cool glass of water from your refrigerator. You keep your milk in there so it doesn't uh, get all bad and stinky. You keep your meat in your refrigerator or in your freezer to keep it even more cold because we have options on how cold we would like our stuff to be. They didn't have this option. And so what they would actually do is use salt to rub it all over their meat to preserve the meat. So salt kept the rot away. And Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. How many of you know the world is a rotting place? Right? Don't look at your neighbor. The world is a rotting place. And Jesus said, you are the element I have chosen to be The preservative. The preservative of what? Of God's righteous standard for kingdom living. We are the preservative. Every place where rot exists, which is every place where Jesus and his people are not, we're supposed to go into that place and be. It's really that simple. We're supposed to go into that place and just be. Just, just you being in a place should preserve the culture and the environment of that place. 
right? The way you live should be different than the way that the world lives. We should be a precious, preserving element in the world. And and again, this this makes a a lot of sense because the world is so dark and, and rotting so much. And if we were truly living like Christ, then it should be obvious that we are different than the world. I heard a cool story. A pastor told a story about a friend of his that lived in Tel Aviv in Israel. And this was a a Christian pastor in Tel Aviv. And an Orthodox Jewish rabbi came to him and he said, you know what? I really want to hate you because you're a Christian. It's a great way to start a conversation, isn't it? I really want to hate you because you're a Christian. That's, That's what he says. But then he follows it up with saying, but I can't. The pastor asked, why? (laughs) It's a good question. What am I doing right? And the rabbi replies, it's because I see all the good that you're doing in the community through your soup kitchen, through your care for the poor, and your love for people. I want to hate you, but I can't because you're making the world a better place. Because you're preserving the world. Just by being in the world, in Tel Aviv, you're making it a better place to live. It should be this way for us. It should be said about us that we are adding good flavor to our community. That that it would actually be impossible to say anything bad about us that sticks. Right? We talked talked a couple of weeks ago about how if we stand for the truth of Jesus, persecution will come. People will say lies about us. People will say all kinds of stuff about us to try to tear us down and make it so the gospel is of no effect in and through our lives. But if we are truly the salt of the earth, we should naturally be making a difference. And even so much so that it would be impossible for people to say anything that would stick. Right? It should be this way. Consider how Jesus ended this entire thought. You heard Jeffrey read it a few minutes ago. He says his goal, his desire for us is that we should live this way so that others would see our good works and do something about it. And the something is that they would glorify our Father in heaven the way that we glorify our Father. That is what it looks like for us to be people who preserve a city and flavor a city. Peter agreed with this in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. In Titus 2.8, it says, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. I think we actually need to stop rejoicing when the world hates us. We have this weird idea in the church that we, I mean, we actually used to say this to each other. If the world's mad at you or the devil's coming after you, you must be doing something right. And there's a degree to which if the devil hates you, you're probably on the right team. But wouldn't it be great if the world looked at the church and said, we're actually thankful for you? Wouldn't it be great if when a church closes in a neighborhood that the neighborhood would mourn? And wouldn't it be great if when a church was struggling in a neighborhood that the neighborhood said, please don't close or go anywhere. We need you here. Man, it'd be so great. And just for the record, we don't get that with our neighborhood by preaching really good sermons. Our neighbors don't care what I'm saying right now. And that's not their fault. What would it look like for us to be salt in this neighborhood? In this neighborhood. Where, where, when you drive out of the parking lot, you're going to have two options. 
you're going to go out of two driveways. And either way, you're facing a house. And I wonder what those people think about us. And I wonder what the people who we don't even see when we drive out of this neighborhood think about us. I'm so thankful that there are people who are members of our church who are within walking distance of our church family. But man, I would love for you all who drove here to have a really hard time finding a seat because we were such good salt in this neighborhood that we made that much of a difference. That it wasn't a handful, it was all of us together in this neighborhood worshiping Jesus together, making a difference together. It could be like that. We've got to do it together. Amen? Amen. Uh, Jesus actually turns this, this metaphor into something that can be a little bit confusing because he says something that if you just read it at face value, it's, really, it's actually kind of hard to understand. When he says, if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? And if you know anything about salt, you can leave it sitting around for a long, long time and it still tastes like salt. And so the question is, how does salt lose its flavor? So I did the hard work for you. I Googled it. And in case you're wondering, salt actually can lose its flavor. The way salt loses its flavor is when a chemical or a substance is introduced into the salt that has a different flavor that has the like chemical reaction happens and has the ability to draw out uh, the, some kind of whatever, I, look, I Googled it. I didn't do a, an extensive research project on it, all right? The short answer is when a foreign element comes into the salt, it can have the ability to, to zap the salt of its flavor. And when salt loses its flavor, it no longer contains its power. So if salt loses its flavor, it's no longer preserving. And if salt isn't preserving, then it's also no longer precious. And so Jesus says, that kind of salt, because what do we need salt for? So that it keeps the rot out of our meat, so that we live. And Jesus says, if, if your relationship with him, if you are salt... And, and, and you go around allowing the world to add other flavors to you. Then you will lose your power to be a precious preserving element in the world. I mean, we could talk a ton about the ways that the church has allowed the world to flavor the way we worship God. We could talk a ton about the way we walk out of our church gatherings and allow the world to flavor the way our brains function because we give our attention to things that are other than him. I mean, just think about how quick it is for you when you walk out of this place, how long would it be before you have one of those phantom vibrations and you check your phone because you're convinced somebody is trying to text you? How long... That's a scientific reality, but they've done studies on that. This is a real phenomenon. Our brains have been wired to think, oh, wait, someone's texting me. I'm telling you there have been moments while I'm preaching that I have thought someone is texting me. My phone is sitting right there. It's just a thing that happens. How often do we allow something else to add flavor to our lives? And Jesus says, look, you, as a Christian... As a follower of the way of Jesus, you exist to add and to preserve the world, not to have the world add to you. 
And, and if you allow the world to add to you, what will happen is you'll lose your Christian flavor. You just look like the world. And things that are rotten can't preserve things that are rotting. And so we, we need to do the work to stay pure. And he says, look, if, if that happens, if your salt loses its flavor, he says, how can it be made salty? I mean, the question itself implies that it's very, very difficult. If you add to your life something other than Jesus, he, the question implies it's very, very hard. He says, you might as well just throw it out, trample it under your foot. Salt is a fairly stable substance, and so is faith in Christ. But, but our job is to make sure that our faith stays pure. Amen? Amen. All right. So Jesus is not saying that we add good flavor uh, to the world alone. He's also giving us this warning not to allow impurities to come into our life. There's a lot that he said here, and, and then he says a little bit more because he adds another metaphor onto the table. He says, not only are you the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, Jesus didn't just make up this expression. This is actually an expression that people understood in the Jewish context. In fact, in Isaiah 42, verse 6, it was said of God to the people of Israel, I make a covenant with you, and the way you live in that covenant will actually be a light to the world. He was actually telling the Jews, be an example for what it looks like to live in relationship with God. It's kind of like being a light to the world. So when Jesus said this to a bunch of Jewish people sitting on the, on the side of a hill, he, they understood what he was saying. He was saying, your life is meant to be a light, an example in the world. God's people are designed to model righteousness and right relationship with him and to do it in public. So Jesus is calling a group of predominantly Jewish people the light of the world. And today he would say to a group of anyone who would follow him, you are the light of the world. But, but also notice the way Jesus said this. He said, he, he did not say, I want you to be the light of the world. He didn't say, it'd be nice if you could figure out how to be the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. If I was preaching this sermon, it, it would go, you are the light of the world, deal with it. <laughs> Just, you have to figure it out. But Jesus actually doesn't because he's a better preacher than me. He unpacks it a little bit. Actually, in John 8, verse 12, we see him saying, I am the light of the world, about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says that he is the source of light and that following him results in freedom from darkness. And the word that he uses there for darkness is a Greek word which actually refers to any kind of darkness of the spirit. And then the Jewish or the, the original language understanding of, of this word that he used for darkness here actually paints a picture of the kind of darkness that is so thick it feels like there's a wall in front of you. Have you ever been in darkness that's so thick you just instinctively put your hands out because it feels thick? And you're just certain you're going to run into something? This kind of darkness uh, is darkness of the spirit and it's the kind of darkness that feels like there's a wall between you and the light. And who's the light? Jesus. So darkness puts a wall between us and Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light, and anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light. They will have the light of life. 
Paul talks about uh, being this kind of light and what it looks like for us in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you were once darkness. I love that he didn't say you were once in darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. So again, you are this, behave accordingly, right? For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper. And rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time, because the days are evil. And we all went, "Uh uh-huh, yes, they are. They're very evil. And we are the light of the world. Paul is very clear here, just like salt, we cannot allow our light to be corrupted by the darkness of the world. Uh, You might say dimmed by the darkness of the world. Uh, And the way that we should live should illuminate the distinction between righteous and unrighteous living. In other words, it should be obvious that the way we live is different than the way people who don't follow Jesus live. It should be easy to make that distinction. It should be like an insult if someone ever says the words, oh, wait, you're a Christian? Like, if anyone's ever surprised by that, we have failed. As the light of the world, Jesus illuminated the way to God. He illuminated it. If Jesus calls us the light of the world, then why would we think that us being the light is anything different? So to shine the light of Jesus, I would say we need to do two things. Number one, we need to make sure that we are connected to the source of light, right? I heard a story, actually, this is a, this is a happening right now story in the world. In San Francisco, there's a place called the East Brother Light Station. It's a historic lighthouse, and for the last 40 years, it's been serving as a bed and breakfast as well. It's on a very small island. It's got room only enough for one lighthouse on the island, and uh, 40 years ago, the, the caretaker of the lighthouse turned it into a bed and breakfast. The lighthouse itself is 147 years old. For 100 47 years, this lighthouse has consistently been shining the light for the ships in the San Francisco area toward safety, right? 11 days ago, there was an underwater uh, pipe, I guess. I don't know. There's a thing that provides source of power. to. Is it a pipe? It's an electricity conduit. Thank you, electricians. Jeffrey's over there telling me what, what word to use. So the pipe that, that holds all the electrical, electrical wiring and everything that runs out to the island, uh, it failed 11 days ago, and the island went completely dark. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard actually owns the pipe and all of the electrical equipment that runs the power, and uh, I guess like in the 70s or something, the power failed and the Coast Guard paid to repair it, and now they sent out a group of people, and uh, the owner says they were very cordial about it, but the U.S. Coast Guard said it would actually be cheaper for us not to repair the piping and the electrical system underneath. Uh, They said it costs like $100,000 just to start the conversation about fixing it, Uh, and so what we're going to do instead is 
we're going to put a solar panel at the top of the lighthouse. That's going to power the light for the boats, and then the rest of the house, you're on your own. So this woman, who is now living on a very small island by herself, is now living. She says, I feel like I'm living like a pioneer. I have to go out and collect wood and make a fire and cook everything. She's, she's talking about how she was running a generator to keep her refrigerator going so that, uh, so that her meat doesn't go bad. I thought about just tweeting at her saying, just use salt. It works. It'll save you gas. But she started to go fund me, and she's trying to get all of this funding. And I was reading this article, and in the middle of my heart going out to this woman in the San Francisco area, thinking, oh, this is so sad. Her home now has no power, and she's got to try to figure this out. And she's really worried because she's lost her business. On top of the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has just decimated her bed and breakfast business. So, I mean, she's in a really tough spot. And I'm reading all of this, I'm thinking, this is so sad. And then it hit me. If your lighthouse isn't connected to the source of power, you're not shining a light. You can't welcome guests to your bed and breakfast. And you can't be a source of life for anyone else that you're trying to direct to safety. Are you connected to the source of light? We exist to be light. We exist to point people to safety. His name is Jesus. And if you're not being light, you're not pointing people to Jesus. You need to be connected to the source of light. In the same way that if we don't have a a connection to our source and our light and power, our ability to welcome and shine people towards Jesus, it's just completely lost. If your life feels like darkness And you're wondering, I thought I knew Jesus. Why is my light so full of darkness? I wonder what it might look like for you to change some of your schedule and spend more time in the light. The second thing that I think that we need to understand if we want to shine the light of Jesus is that we need to make sure that we're holding the light the right way. Uh, Remember how Jesus ended his thought in verse 16 again. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus said, let your light shine before others. He, he didn't say, let your light shine onto others. You good? You good? How's that feel? You see the light. You, all right, I'll put it on your shirt. You good? Does that feel good? Aren't you so glad you came to church today? <laughs> you know what we do is, as Christians with our faith? We go, oh, I'm the light of the world. And so we go, oh, I know what that means. I'm supposed to take the light of the world and shine it on other people so that they can see how messed up they are. <laughs> gotcha. It's interesting how we, we point our light as a weapon, right? Like we have, we have raised an entire generation of churchgoers that think that we exist in the world to show people that being a Christian makes us better than them. You want to come to church, right? Your life is awful. You kind of suck as a person. Come and hang out with us. We'll make you better. I don't want to go to your church. And I'm a pastor. 
Everyone at home right now is like, I'm so glad I'm watching this online. <laughs> Look, we were not given a tool for interrogation and conviction. We were given the light of grace and love. It's a light of truth, and it does convict, but that's not your job. Your job is not to do the work of convicting other people by pointing the light at them and going, Kyle, I see your sin. Look, everyone, Kyle's a sinner. Our job job is to shine the light. Not to do the work of, of, of lighting other people up, but to be the light of the world. I wonder what it would look like if... Every person that follows Jesus stopped worrying so much about everyone else's sin. I mean, no wonder we don't know how to normalize confession in the church because we have created a culture where if I tell you how I'm not like Jesus, you may not want to come back to church next Sunday. And, it, and so then you feel like if, if you say how you're not like Jesus, you're definitely not coming back to church next Sunday. Because when you walked in and we said, how are you doing? You go, oh, everything's great. It's wonderful. My life is awesome. I'm just like Jesus every single day. And then you went and cussed at somebody when you got home. I mean, you laugh, but. Look, you're not, you're not Jesus. It'd be good if you could be more like him. Is that hurting your eyes or something? There you go. <laughs> he said shine it at the camera. All right, we love you. We love you people at home. I'll put it away now. Okay, what does this mean? Should we not shine in, like, should we not tell people, like, Hey, what you're doing is is not honoring God. Should we not tell people when when sin is present? I don't know. Yeah, that's probably good that I don't get to hold that anymore. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. I I wonder if our evangelism tactics are just backwards. I wonder if sin would just be worked out in the life of a person that really was told how much Jesus loves them. I wonder what would happen if you spent the next 30 years telling everyone you met, Jesus loves you more than you could possibly understand. And just dismantling every argument that they come up with for why that's not true. I have a feeling that if you could bathe a person in the context of the light and love of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin better than you could if you tried to do it. Because that's what happens with me. Because I know when I've got stuff in my life and I go to read the word, I don't need you to tell me what's wrong with me. Right? Like, we are really good at being our own best critic. What if we told people, hey, go and be a critic of your life with the Holy Spirit in the context of love. I have no business of telling you how wrong you are, how messed up you are. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't correct you know, brothers in love and sisters in Christ in, in love and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that there aren't places for correction uh, and, and tweaking things and all of that inside the body, inside the church, right? 
But, but out there, the world doesn't need to see what we know about how they're doing wrong. The world needs to see that we love them because Jesus loved us, like the song said, when we didn't deserve it. By the way, you still aren't doing much that's deserving it. Jesus said, if, if, if you wanted to try, in fact, we'll talk about this a little bit next week, but if you wanted to try living perfectly, all of your righteousness, if you've had all the righteousness of all the Pharisees, you're still not good enough to get into the kingdom. You're only here on love, right? So why would we use any other tactic to invite other people in? So this means we have to be loving in our witness for Christ and public in our ethics, public in the way that we live in the world. Finally, Jesus pairs this other this metaphor with another metaphor. He says, you are a city on a hill. Now, it's believed that, that from where Jesus was sitting on this hill that you could actually see a, another town or city named Safed. And, and it's believed it may have been the, the tallest city in the region. And I think people probably built cities and towns on hills for multiple reasons. But whatever the reason was, Jesus was actually pointing to a reality. And the reality is this. If you're a city on a hill, everyone around you can see you. Right? They can see you for your poverty and they can see you for your wealth. They can see you for how protected and secure your walls are or how open you are to attack. So live like everyone can see you. That's the lesson. Live, live like everyone can see you. Jesus called us the light of the world and the city on a hill in the same breath. And then he unpacks it like this. No one, sets, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I, I mean, this should be so obvious from thinking about lighting the room. We didn't put the lights in this room on the floor. We put them in the ceiling because that's how the light fills the room right? If you've been with us on a candlelight service on Christmas Eve, we give everyone a candle and they hold it down and we turn the lights off and the room is dark. But then when they lift their candle up above their head, the whole room lights up. There's just a rule of light. If you want to light a room, hold the light up. Put it high so it can fill the whole space. Jesus has a plan for the entire world to be filled with light. You are the plan. You're a city on a hill. Live accordingly. Live like everyone can see you and live like you would really love for everyone to see you because you're not just you, you're Jesus shining through you. Right? Like that should change the world. And this is incredibly important, by the way, for everybody who wants to come to church and say, I just have a private relationship with Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. Everybody just keep, just, just leave me alone about sharing the gospel all the time. It's just me and Jesus. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. Well, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. There is no such thing as a private Christian. No such thing. It's not possible. No such thing as a hidden faith in Christ. It has to be shared. It has to be. It must be obvious that Jesus has changed your life. Or otherwise, he hasn't. But what about all this stuff I do? What about the fact that I'm sitting here right now? I'm not trying to beat you up. But what about the fact that I came to church on Sunday? I, I, I don't need to see your light. The darkness does. 
This sermon isn't about your church attendance. This is about your Tuesday. This is about where you go to work. This is about your family, your household. In fact, there is a, there's a phrase that, that you may have heard before. If you've ever tried, had any conversations about ministry, someone has said to you, your first ministry is your family. Right? That phrase comes from the idea that Paul instructed Timothy, one of his disciples, uh, about how to select leaders in the local church. And one of the things he said to, to Timothy was, if you see someone, they might be super talented, but if their family is messed up and out of order, if they can't get that in order, then they're not eligible for leadership in the church. Your family is your first ministry. If we don't prioritize our faith at home, then we have no business acting like we have faith in public. There's a word for that. The word is hypocrisy. And there's many, many people who say, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. We're a bunch of hypocrites. In this, and, and I understand, like, we can undo that argument by saying that's, like, the same reason you would say I don't go to the gym because it's full of out-of-shape people. <laughs> well, that's why we go to the gym, right? We're hypocrites. That's why we came to church because we really, really need this. But at the same time, we can't just come to church and go, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Everything's great in my life. And then not shine the light of Jesus in the world. You're a hypocrite. I, Jesus said that. Not me. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. <laughs> but here's the, here's the practical question. Do you have a plan? A plan. Say the word plan. Do you have a plan for engaging your faith at home? What's that old expression? If you plan to fail, you... If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's how it goes. It's an old expression. But do you have a plan in your private life? Do you have a, in your personal alone life? If you have a family, do you have a plan for your family to engage the light? Your plan can be as simple as a daily rhythm of Bible reading and prayer. I've got a friend who pastors a church in Arizona. He, he has uh, a motto for his church. And, and one of the things that he says in there is he says, I, I want everyone in our church to give 15 minutes of God time. He, he builds his whole church around saying that we want to do uh, gather time, God time, and go time. And so the God time is spend at least 15 minutes. He, he said, I used to tell people what to read in the Bible every day and how to do it. Now, I would just love you open your Bible for 15 minutes because it's not about the, the structure as much as it's about creating a routine of spending time with the word of God every single day. And it's amazing how much a routine of time with God will impact the culture of a home. Okay, if you're a parent and you're struggling with discipline, can I, I've, got a, I've got an almost 14-year-old daughter and an uh, 11-year-old, 18-year-old daughter now. <laughs> She's almost 11. <clears throat> so I am qualified because I officially have a teenager now. I am now qualified to begin giving you parenting advice. <laughs> if you have a discipline problem with your children at home, stop fighting them about it. Start by turning up the light of Jesus in your home. What if, what if rather, what if rather than the next time your kids don't do what you tell them to do, you don't say, because I said so, but you say, what would Jesus say about this? And you don't say it in the context of, well, what would Jesus say about this? Because those are the same words but a very different conversation. But what if you came and you said, 
you know what? I love you so much, and I don't know that I have all the answers, but can we look together to find out what Jesus would say about this? Because if there's something as a parent that I need to do differently because Jesus would say a correction to me, then I'd be willing to open the word with you and find out. If I'm wrong, I would let Jesus correct me in front of you. Man, I wonder what that would teach our children about humility. You know how I've gotten the most dad points with my kids? Confession. Messing up in front of them and going and saying, you know what, Jesus was not happy with what I just did. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Save a lot of arguments. I'm not saying you wouldn't have any. I mean, you've got kids. (laughs) I just wonder what it would look like if we bathed our houses with light. And for every single one of you who is thinking, I can't do that because of, and then started making excuses about all of the unworthy ways that you have in your life that can't get you into the presence of God, can I just say, get over yourself. Jesus died for you on the cross when you had that list of all of the reasons why you were unworthy to enter into his presence, and he did it anyway because he loves you. Your list doesn't matter. Get into his presence. And if this isn't super clear already, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Let me just say to you right now, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I didn't stand up here to make you feel bad. I stood up here to make you feel convicted because you're loved, right? If you're just now realizing, oh my goodness, this is what's wrong with my parenting. This is what's wrong with my marriage. This is what's wrong with my personal life, is that I'm not spending any time with God. Don't walk out of here feeling bad about yourself. Walk out of here feeling so loved because God sent me here to tell you this today. Because he loves you. And if you haven't spent time with him in a little while, he just wants you to know he misses you. And this really could change your life. You don't get to be the salt and the light and the city on a hill if you haven't spent time connected to the source of power. But man, he really, really loves you. He really, really loves you. I was talking to a friend recently, in case you're wondering uh, how you should feel right now if you feel convicted or corrected. I I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently that I love very much and there was some stuff that needed, that just as a friend, as a pastor voice in his life, I just was like, hey, this was wrong. Man, I was so blessed by the response because in a world where so many people go immediately to like, well, let me tell you the 16 reasons why I did what I did or here's my perspective on the thing. He just went, I feel bad about that. How can we fix it? I mean, that, that was like, the, that was it. It was almost shocking how simple it was. So I've just become accustomed to people defending themselves so much. I do it too. And it was so great because the conversation was, here's what's wrong. He said, I feel bad about that. And then we spent the rest of the time talking about hope. Something good. My friend modeled what it looks like for us to respond in moments of conviction. Listen to the truth. Recognize where we've missed it. Admit that we've missed it. Talk about how to get it right. So if you feel convicted today, whoo, welcome. But I would just tell you that that conviction is the Holy Spirit. That conviction is a gift from God. Be like my friend. So we come to Jesus and we say, I've missed it. I've been dim. 
I've been flavorless. I haven't been the city on a hill. How can I get it right? And the answer is live in public. In fact, let me give you a couple things and we'll wrap up. Here's what you can actually do. Admit to God and to safe friends, not your Facebook account, to safe friends how you failed to be salt and light. Just, just say it out loud. Then tell your family that you were convicted to share the light in your home. Whoever you're, you're living with, you're, you're sharing that you have been convicted to share the light in your home. That's going to illuminate a whole ton of stuff that doesn't belong in your house. Right? For some of you, you don't belong in your house. Like you're in a living arrangement that isn't the one you're supposed to be in. So sharing the light in your home is going to reveal to you that your home environment isn't right. So you're going to have to figure out how to get that right. So then the third thing you do is you ask for help from your family, from your church home. We are here to help you, your church community, your friends, people you gather with in small groups. And then the next thing you do is you make a plan to spend time with God every single day. If you're like my wife, you put it on the calendar. Because if it's on the calendar, she will do it. If you're like me, you tell your wife. <laughs> because if it's in her mind, I will do it. Because I know later on, when I get home, she's going to go, did you do the thing you said you were going to do today? And I want to say yes. You should be thankful for planners in your life. They are a gift. And then you make a plan to share the light of Jesus with others. And by make a plan, I mean you play out in your mind what would it look like to tell that coworker about Jesus? Or what would it look like the next time they say a thing that's offensive to you to be loving and to be the light? Not, by the way, the plan is not, you're a sinner, I can't believe you said that. That's not the plan. Right? But what would it actually look like for you to live that person and love Jesus. I mean, I, I heard a pastor once challenge his church to share the gospel with 30 people in one year. What if you started with one? Just start with one. In fact, who are they? Think about them. And what are you going to do about it? And if you need help with some kind of darkness or brokenness in your personal life or in your family, in your home, in your relationships, your church community is here to help. Call us. We would love to connect you to people who can help. If we personally can't help, we would love to sit down and talk with you. We would love to just be with you. We'll cry with you. We'll listen to literally whatever you have to say, and we'll point you to Jesus. And maybe along the way, you might get some advice from the Word of God about how you can respond. God has called us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city on the hill. I honestly think that this is so hard for us because we don't spend enough time with Jesus and we doubt whether or not his light really has made a difference in our own life. So we're not so sure that we can share it with others. It has to start with us leaning into a relationship with Jesus. Evangelism in the church is not a program. It's the natural river of life that flows out of the heart of people who are passionate about Jesus. It's the natural light we share, right? So we do this by keeping our hearts pure, by staying connected to Jesus, and by living for Jesus in public so that the light is never hidden. Amen? Can I give you one final thought and then pray a blessing over you? I'm going to do it anyway, but can I? Thank you. All right. 
The final thought is this. It is super easy for us to feel insignificant and disconnected because we live in the Antelope Valley, right? Like this place has a stigma attached to it of insignificance. It's just been a spiritual warfare that we've been fighting for years and years where all of our dreams come to the Antelope Valley to die and nothing good could ever happen here. And yet here you are, right? But it's easy for us. And maybe because of, especially for our friends who are joining us online, maybe it's social distancing that has made it feel like it's impossible for us to do anything significant or for us to share the light of Jesus with the world. Well, Jesus came and and offered us hope in the middle of that. And the hope is that he had a really, really big vision. Think about who Jesus was talking to. A group of people sitting on the side of a mountain, Jewish people, largely insignificant. Tell me how many of their names you actually know. Maybe a dozen, right? Do you, do you know all the disciples' names? A couple, couple of the key women that were some of them funding the ministry of Jesus. Most of those hundreds of people sitting on the side of a hill were not written about in the history books. You don't know their names. Most of us, the reality is most of us, when we're in heaven, we won't be written into a history book. The question isn't, are you going to do something that the world would call significant? Jesus called you to be a world changer, and he said the way to do that is to be the salt and the light of the world and be a city on a hill. And if you can change one person's life, you're a world changer. If you can love one person closer to Jesus, you've changed the world. So maybe you feel insignificant, but Jesus would absolutely disagree with you. Jesus looked at those people, insignificant, probably a little dirty because they didn't have showers like we do. Feet dirty because they traveled to get there. And they said, you guys are world changers. Whatever you walked in here with, Jesus looks at you and says, you, you're a world changer. Would you go and do it? Jesus, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would give us a conviction and a passion for your word. I pray you would put on our mind people that we know that don't know you or that know you but don't love you. Would you give us a conviction and a passion for them and a true, genuine love for them, the kind that you have? God, would you start that first and foremost by giving us a conviction and a passion for you and your word? Make us to shine bright by showing us your light even more. Life Church, I pray this blessing over you. May you know the light of life that comes from Jesus. May your heart be purified by the love and the word of God. May all darkness be removed from your life by the power of the love of Jesus. May you have a conviction and a passion to be salt and light. May you be a city on the hill, not so that other people can see you, but so that people can see your good works and glorify your Father. May you be a life-giving invitation, a lighthouse shining the way to Jesus. May you be blessed to see others find safe harbor in his name. And along the way, may you have peace. In Jesus' name, amen.